This morning, uh, I'm in the fourth week of my Advent sermon series, which is uh, drawing from the themes of the four Advent candles, hope, peace, joy, and faith. And today is all about the faith that Jesus brings. And I want to begin by reading Matthew's account of the Christmas story. So from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to verse, chapter 2, verse 6. Here we go. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Father, we pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts. Help us to hear and to understand what this means. Help us to apply this to our lives. Transform us today as we meditate on your word and spend this time in your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, of course, next Sunday is Christmas, and Christmas is famous for two competing, hard-to-believe narratives that bring a lot of joy and a lot of wonder to many people. This is the first narrative. first narrative is about Santa Claus, this very large man who lives year-round at the North Pole with his wife and a number of elves who help him make presents. And then every Christmas Eve, the story goes, he gets on the sleigh pulled by eight reindeer, And he flies around the world delivering toys to lots of good boys and good girls uh, sliding down their chimney and eating their cookies that they've left out for him. The second narrative is about a baby who, just as we read, he was born to a virgin teenager in a stable or cave, depending on how you read it, surrounded by animals, visited by shepherds and astrologers from the east, and In case I forgot to mention, this baby was God in human form. Come to save the people from their sins, to restore them to a right relationship with God. Now, if you're listening at home with little ones, you may want to mute this part. At some point, children grow up and they do the math. And they start to say, wait a minute. I don't think it's possible for that Santa Claus character to travel around the world and visit all those homes in one night. 
And eventually they start to think, maybe this is just a legend. Maybe this is not real. And they stop believing in Santa Claus. But what about the other story? What about that other hard-to-believe story about a, a, a baby born to a virgin mother who was God in human form? Again, a lot of people grow up and they say, wait a minute, you know, virgins don't get pregnant and give birth. And what's the likelihood of God taking on human form in a baby in the middle of nowhere? What's the likelihood of that being true? And many reject that as just another myth or fairy tale, just like the story of Santa Claus. Yet here I am, and here you are. And as hard to believe as this Christmas story might be, this one is actually true. And I want to talk a little bit this morning about that, about the faith that Jesus brings, this remarkable true Christmas story. First thing I want to say about this is that this story was written by eyewitnesses or the companions of eyewitnesses. You see, while no one has ever seen Santa Claus with their own eyes, the story of Jesus was written by eyewitnesses or the companions of the eyewitnesses, those who lived among Jesus, those who knew him, who walked with him. Many of you may be familiar with the assumption that many people make about the stories of Jesus, right? Well, you know, it's kind of like the game of telephone, people say, right? You know, they were written down hundreds of years later, so we can't really trust them that these accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not really contemporary to the life of Jesus. It's, again, been passed down by people over time. And there's not enough sources to trust, and they're not independent of each other. And they're, not, they're, they're biased. They're not, you know, they're not just objective. So we can throw them out as historical documents. But that's not true. These are eyewitness accounts or accounts written by those who walked and lived and talked with the eyewitnesses. Let me just share a few things that are important if you consider that argument. The argument that, well, it's just kind of like a game of telephone. You can't really buy these stories. First of all, if you bought that argument, you need to throw out basically everything that's ever been written before the printing press. Because when you look at the New Testaments and the reliability of the New Testament documents, going to get technical for a, a second here. We have in existence 5,700 Greek manuscripts from antiquity, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 15,000 manuscripts in other ancient languages written between 50 to 100 AD, dated to 130 or less. In other words, a gap of 30 to 80 years from the times of when things happen, when the events happen, and when we have the first existing manuscripts. Not the first time it was written down, maybe, but at least the first existing manuscripts. The next most reliable work is the works of Homer, you know, not Simpson's Homer, but the Iliad and Odyssey Homer. There's fewer than 2,400 manuscripts of his works in existence. He wrote about 800 B.C., and the earliest manuscripts we have are from about 250 A.D., a gap of about 1,000 years between when it was written and when we have early manuscripts. This is the way it is for just about everything else that we take as history. But when it comes to stories of Jesus, people say, well, we can't trust that. You know, It's been passed down. It's been written down. The manuscripts we have are 30, 50 years after the events when they happen. But again, if you throw that out, you're throwing out basically everything in history because it's so much more reliable than anything else. Second, you have to understand the Gospels were written as historical documents. They were not written as once upon a time in the magical land of Bethlehem, right? They are written as historical documents. Consider Luke. Luke is where we find the most, the longest narrative of the Christmas story. 
And this is how he introduces his book. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. How's that for an introduction? Right? This is not once upon a time in Jerusalem, once upon a time there was a baby born to a virgin. No, this is, listen, I have done the research, I have talked to the eyewitnesses, I'm following other accounts that have been written, and I'm proclaiming to you what is true, the events as they happened. He's writing as a historian who walked among the other eyewitnesses. You see Luke in the book of Acts going on missionary journeys with Paul and with other disciples. He lived and walked and spent his time with the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And he writes it down. You have an example here, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. This is how he grounds his stories. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Again, how's that for history? He is grounding it in, here was what was going on in the realm at the time. This is who was in charge. This is historical documents that are reliable. The story of Jesus. This is not a fanciful tale about some man up at the North Pole. This is the events as they happened. Luke, again, as I said, was a contemporary of the disciples, walked among them. John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he was a contemporary of Peter and wrote it based on Peter's account of Jesus' life. John most likely was, he called himself the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John, one of the disciples, and Matthew, the tax collector Levi, also known as Matthew. These Gospels all bear the marks of historicity. There's unnecessary details. There's embarrassing testimony. Again, like if you were making up stories, you wouldn't make yourself look as bad as the disciples did, right? You read the Gospels, and the disciples do not come off as these heroes. They come off as these bumbling fools who have a hard time believing this Jesus. Cowardly deniers who run away when he's arrested. There's names that are consistent with the time period. There's loose ends that aren't answered. There's a lot of marks of historicity in there. And again, this, this contention that, well, they're just a game of telephone, you know, There's a difference between oral tradition of stories and the oral tradition of history. That oral tradition was corporate memory. Again, Jesus rose from the dead and right away in the the book of Acts, you have them proclaiming right away that Jesus rose from the dead. Going all around proclaiming that Jesus not only lived and died, but rose again. Paul writing letters saying, this is what I've heard, what I received, I'm passing on to you. That Christ died for our sins, that he rose again from the dead. This isn't like me trying to remember what happened 30 years ago and writing it down. This is from the very moment that Jesus rose from the dead. These are the stories. These are the accounts that have been talking and teaching every day that they have written down for us now. They were written during the time period of the eyewitnesses. If people were making up stories, the eyewitnesses would have said, no, that's not how it happened. What we have is reliable testimony. And remember, even Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, 
whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. If that wasn't enough, he says, the Holy Spirit will remind you of everything I've said. The words that we have are trustworthy and true. There's a man named Papias. He was a Greek early church leader, lived from the year 60 AD to the year 130 AD, and he wrote this in the year 110 AD about the reliability. He said, I shall not hesitate to put into properly ordered form for you everything I learned carefully in the past from the elders and noted down well for the truth of which I vouch. For unlike most people, I did not enjoy those who have a great deal to say, but those who teach the truth. Nor did I enjoy those who recall someone else's commandments, but those who remember the commandments given by the Lord to the faith and proceeding from the truth itself. And if by chance anyone who had been attendance on the elders should come my way, I inquired about the words of the elders. That is what Andrew or Peter said or Philip or Thomas or James or John or Matthew or any other of the Lord's disciples. And whatever Aristion and the elder John, the Lord's disciples, were saying, for I did not think that information from books would profit me as much as information from a living and surviving voice. So this is an account here of an early church leader saying that, listen, I want to rely on the eyewitness testimony of the disciples. That is the truth that I believe, the truth that I am teaching. The information from a living and surviving voice. Again, I know that there is this kind of assumption, this false assumption out there. Well, you know, we can't believe these books. They're just kind of like a game of telephone. We can't believe that this is true or not. But I am here to proclaim to you that these are reliable stories. There's a reliable testimony, eyewitness testimony of what happened. So that's the first thing you need to know about this Christmas story. Why this is not just the story of Santa Claus that you kind of grow up and say, well, that was a kid's story. It was written by eyewitnesses, companions of the eyewitnesses. And then secondly, it fulfills a remarkable number of prophecies. This child that was born fulfilled a remarkable number of prophecies from the Old Testament. Let me just do a quick survey in case you're unfamiliar with the story as the Bible lays it out. That in the beginning, there was God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God, living in perfect love and community for all eternity. And out of the overflow of that love, God created humans to enjoy that relationship, to be his image bearers here on earth. But we rebelled against him. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And now, as they listen to the voice of the serpent, they turn from God and sin entered the world. Brokenness between man and God. Brokenness between humanity. Brokenness between humans and nature and internally. As sin created that breach. But even in the beginning, God, as he cast the man and woman out of Eden and pronounced this curse on the serpent. He said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In the very beginning, there is this promise, this prophecy given to Satan, the serpent, that one day the seed of this woman will come and you will, you will injure him, but he will crush you. And people have always seen that as the first of many prophecies that point to this Jesus who will come, this Messiah who will come, and finally put right what was wrong and crush Satan. But God did not want to leave us in our sin, and so he called a human, Abraham, and his family to come and follow him. 
In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so he sends Abram and then all of his descendants, the people of Israel, to go and to be his people, his image bearers, reflecting his love to the world so that everyone would know that God is the Lord. But it doesn't go well for the people of God. They end up in slavery in Egypt. And God raises up a man named Moses to help rescue them. And eventually they get out, they settle in the promised land. And the people are restless about having God as their king, so they want human kings. And so God gives them Saul and then David. And God promises to King David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and your kingdom will be endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That he's going to establish the throne through the line of David. There will be someone, this descendant of David, who will sit on the throne forever. And then God raises up prophet after prophet to proclaim about this Messiah figure who will come and save the people. Two of them we read already this morning. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, although you, are a, although you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is why you might notice when you read through Matthew, he keeps saying, this was to fulfill what was written. This was to fulfill what the prophet said. This was to fulfill what was written. He keeps saying over and over how what is happening here is fulfilling what was written back in the Old Testament. That the story of Jesus fulfills a remarkable number of prophecies. So this Jesus, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, goes on to begin his public ministry around the age 29 or 30. And he goes on to teach and to heal and to tell people that their eternal destiny depends upon how they, de- how they respond to him. Goes around proclaiming the kingdom of God. What it means to know him. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Believe the good news. And in Mark ten forty five, For even the Son of Man, which is how he referred to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me just quickly throw a few others up here. There's a lot of prophecies that are fulfilled throughout his life that I could mention. Here's just a few. That he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. He would be betrayed by a friend, and the betrayal would be for 30 pieces of silver. The money would be used to purchase the potter's field. The Messiah would die a sacrificial death for us. He would die with criminals, but his burial would be with the wealthy. He would rise from the dead. He would say certain words on the cross. He would be mocked and people would gamble for his clothes. It would take a long time to go through all of those, so I'm just throwing them up here right now with with some of the references, just so you know. Again, the point is that this baby is not just some legend, some myth, but this is the fulfillment of all these prophecies about this Messiah figure who would come to save us from our sins. And some argue, well, you know, maybe Jesus just maneuvered his life to fit these prophecies, right? You know, he read and he saw how the Messiah was going to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. And so he's like, let's go find a donkey. People are going to think I'm the Messiah. Okay, maybe he could do that. But many of the other ones, like being born in Bethlehem, like being born to a virgin, like being betrayed and then and Judas going and buying the potter's field and dying and rising again. A lot of those things, of course, he could not just maneuver on his own. 
that this is the eternal Son of God. This is the Messiah. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus. After he died and rose again, he was walking with a couple of disciples who did not recognize him. In Luke 24, he says this, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Love that line. So he's walking along with them, and he says, he goes back and he just, as they're walking, takes the time to walk them through the whole Old Testament how, and to show them how every part of it just points to him. Remember that time that Abraham had to sacrifice Isaac, but God told him not to, and he provided a lamb in his place? That points to me. That just as Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, his only son, but did not have to, God the Father sacrificed me, his only son. I am the lamb who took the place Remember that time in Exodus, in the Exodus, when, when uh, the, the angel of death was going to come and kill the firstborn, and the only way was for the blood of the lamb to be put on the doorpost? Is the only way to survive? That points to me and is my blood. I'm the blood of me, my, the lamb of God that protects you from the angel of death, that spares you from death. On and on, walking through the Old Testament, showing how it all points to him how it all finds its fulfillment in him. Again, this story is not a legend. This story is not like the story of Santa Claus. The story is eyewitness accounts, fulfilling the prophecies. That is who Jesus is. The last thing I want to say about this true Christmas story is that it shows us God in human form. I mean, all around the world, people have been reaching out, trying to figure out who God is, trying to create God or, or figure out who this divine, what the divine is, if there's anything beyond this world. And now at Christmas, we have Jesus, God in human form. In John chapter 14, Jesus, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Again, I could go for a while through uh, the ways that he shows that he is God in human form, but here's just some from the Gospel of John. John 2.19, Jesus predicts his resurrection. All these passages in John where those who believe in him will have eternal life. And those who reject him will be condemned and die in their sins. John chapter 4, he is the Messiah. He calls himself the Messiah. John chapter 5, Jesus proclaims that he is the judge and that he gives life. John 6 and 8, he says that he has come down from heaven and that all who believe in him will have eternal life. John 7, he claims to be speaking God's words. John 8, he claims to be without sin. Later in John 8, he claims to be the eternal God. And John 18, that he is a king from another place. Again, if I got up here and said any of these things, you would rightly leave this place right now. You would rightly laugh at me for proclaiming any of this. If I said to you that your eternal destiny depends upon what you think about me and whether or not you believe in me, 
you would think I'm crazy, a megalomaniac or something, right? If I claim that I have the ability to forgive other people's sins or that I've come down from heaven, all of these things are crazy. But Jesus said all of these things, which prompted C.S. Lewis in his most well-known quote probably to say this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must never say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you may fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He did not leave that open to us and he did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently... However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. If these are eyewitness testimonies, if they do fulfill these prophecies about who Jesus was going to be, who this Messiah was going to be, and if he made all these claims about himself, then he's either crazy, lying, or he is the eternal Son of God. And if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. In the end, you got to put your faith in something. You're either going to put your faith in that God exists or faith that there is no God. This is the faith that Jesus brings, that this is God in human form. Come to save the people from their sins, to restore us to a right relationship with the Father. And so going back to the beginning of those two competing narratives of the Santa Claus story and the Jesus story and how as a child you grow up with wonder at these stories, but then as you grow up, most people cast off the first and many cast off the second as well. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Apparently, there is something about the childlike wonder that Jesus says is faith. Greater than the faith of an adult is the faith of a child, he says. A child who recognized that they are completely dependent upon their parent. The way that we can come recognizing our complete dependence on God. Trusting him. Believing in him. Some might find that offensive to say, oh, you've got to be like a child, right? Some people who feel like they've studied and learned and, and feel like they're the smartest person in the room get a, would get offended by thinking this, by hearing this and saying, you know what? You've got to become like a little child. You have to return to that childlike wonder, that childlike trust and belief. But that's Jesus saying, you want to know who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is? It's this child. Humble yourself like this child to trust in Jesus, to believe in the Father. Can I encourage you this morning, if you do not believe in Jesus, if you're not sure what you believe, 
to read the eyewitness accounts for yourself, to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to read the stories, to ask God whether these are true, whether he is who he says he is. And if you don't know Jesus but would like to, here's a prayer you can pray this morning. Let me read this, and I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus but want to this morning, to pray this along with me. Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I believe that in you is found eternal life, life to the full. I believe that apart from faith in you, I will die in my sins, separated from God for all eternity. But I believe that you love me so much that you died on the cross in my place, taking the penalty for my sin, and that you rose from the grave, conquering death. I turn from my sinful, self-centered way of life, and I believe in you as my Savior and Lord. Amen. With faith like a child, believe in Jesus today. Let me pray. Father, we pray for those in our life who do not believe in you, even those in this room who do not believe in you who aren't sure what to believe. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them today or as they turn and read the accounts of your life from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that you would speak to them and reveal yourself and draw them to a true and saving faith in you. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would restore in us a childlike wonder at this story, that the eternal Son of God left the comfort of heaven to come down to live among us, to show God to us, to die for us, to rescue us, to save us, to give us eternal life. Help us to worship you, Lord, with faith like a child. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.